This is Andrew Faust with Permaculture Perspectives. And today, you're going to hear a great conversation with Michael Polarski, one of the longtime leaders in permaculture design in the Pacific Northwest. I remember Michael from back in the 90s when I first started studying permaculture with his group Friends of the Trees. And he has been into restoration forestry and really laying the foundations of permaculture design for more than 30 years. So kick back and enjoy this great conversation. Hello, Michael. Hi there, is that Andrew? Yes. Okay, have we ever met oh. in person? I can't say we have, but I've known your name for, did you used to be in Hawaii or am I thinking of somebody else? It's somebody else. I've never had the pleasure of being out there with any regularity. Okay. All right. Yeah. I think it was a different Faust. There's so many of you Fausts out there. Like <laughs> this is true. Bargains. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's a pleasure to meet you and to have the opportunity to speak with you. You know, virtual will do for now. I look forward to an in-person meeting at some point in the future. Yeah, that would be that'd be nice. Maybe they'll do another North American permaculture convergence at some point. Now, I don't know if you know, but I was one of the organizers of the first one. Oh, I didn't know. And then there was a second one in Hopland, California. The first one was in Minnesota, southern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And, oh gosh, 2000 and oh, a long time ago. Boy, I can't even, I don't even have that figure of the year in my head. Um, but at any rate, um, so is this, a, is this projected to be an hour? I'm not quite sure what the plan is here. Yeah, something like that. Uh, wherever, okay. you know, wherever we land, really, I just figured we, we would, I'm sure, have plenty to talk about. And yeah. uh, I've been, let me uh, get us set up here one second. I think I, my co-host, David Harper, is just... I see, I see his face there, you young uns. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've, uh, I probably should try to try to say that we should end at four. I'm in the middle of Perfect. a work day with uh, three people. I'm working with three people here. I'm in my um, herb office. Uh, we have an herb business, botanicals. We sell a lot of medicinals and a lot of seeds a lot of propagation material and today we're busy getting out some fresh root orders and a bunch of dried herb orders yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what what are some of your i was uh well so to 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 set us up for a quick minute here i'd say you know from looking at the at your site and reading your your bio it really you've been bringing real personal energy to the permaculture community since the 80s and I, I just want to appreciate your work in the field and you know talk with you some about what it is that brought you to permaculture as a as a term maybe a little if you wouldn't mind going into a little bit about who you studied with and what are some of the things that now you've taken with you in your 25 30 year career since then uh, I'd love to hear stuff about Global Earth Rare, Global Earth Repair, and the work you're doing there, okay. and agroforestry projects. So to kind of give you a scope of things, um, yeah. So I'd love to, if you wouldn't mind 
indulging us for a quick minute here for our listeners and just sharing a little about what brought you to permaculture as a term and then a little about who you studied with and, and how that influences where your where your work is today. What, what are some of the projects then that you're particularly inspired about that you're working on presently? Okay. So yeah, and, thank you. All right. And tell me the name of your podcast again. I, I, is, I uh, left we are home. Per- Permaculture Perspectives Podcast. Permaculture Perspectives Podcast. That sounds wonderful. And uh, I was on Pina, an interview pretty recently, pretty similar to this. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And it's nice to meet David here, too. And you are both on the East Coast. Yeah. Good to meet you, Michael. I'm currently I'm in South Carolina, Charleston. And then obviously Andrew's up in upstate New York. So, um, but we work primarily in the East, but we're always interested in learning more about projects out West that could involve the idea of bringing land trust work, land conservation work together with agroforestry and permaculture design, because we feel like that's an uncharted territory there. And we, before we wrap up, we'd love to hear a little more about your thoughts on legacy planning for some of these multi-generational projects that you've been stewarding. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're the people who are um, that are setting up this new permaculture land trust. I was in conversation with. Okay, that's that correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well then, yeah, we... I I'm ready to roll. Then so you just Great. pop in anytime you want to slow me down or steer me in a different direction or whatever. Oh yes, perfect. Thank you. Okay. So. I'm Michael Polarski, and I started Friends of the Trees Society in 1978. Uh, Before that, I started organic farming in 1972. So I've been farming and growing things and working with plants uh, for 52 years or so now. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I've always been a cheerleader for whatever movements I'm in. And so I was a cheerleader for the organic farming movement. And in 19, uh, approximately 1981 is my first publication where I used the term permaculture. It was a, it was called Permaculture Resources Guide. It was just a short little thing. And that was in 1981. So that was shortly after I first heard about permaculture. And then in 1982, the very first permaculture course was held in the Pacific Northwest Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. And it was, I don't know, maybe the third or fourth course in the U.S. Uh, at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friends organized the event. And so I got to take that course in 1982 with Andrew Jeeves, who's mm-hmm. the illustrator for a lot of Mollison's works. And yeah. Mollison actually came to the conference or to the course and spent three days with us. Mm-hmm. And we became friends and we remained friends all, all our lives. You know, uh, I'm a, I was always a big fan of Bill. Uh, Bill, Do you, do you know Larry Santoyo, Michael? Oh, I know Larry Santoyo very well, actually. Yep. Maybe yep. better than he wants. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but Larry Santoyo uh, was I've a permaculturist in, in Eastern yeah. Washington. Yep. Back when I was a permaculturist, so we we were we were pals for a long time and worked together with Simon Henderson, etc. Mm-hmm. So I sat around. I sat around with Simon Henderson, Larry Santoyo, and Bill Mollison, and had a great time. That's um, um, 
I will say yeah. you know, just yeah, that uh, that uh, Larry Santoyo and, and Simon Henderson, his sidekick, were like stand-up comedians for Permaculture. They were about the about as good as you could get for uh, Permaculture comedians that I know. Yeah, I but completely anyway, agree. <laughs> but when I kind of look to Larry for teaching me more of that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. So. Bill Mollison, in his day, in his prime, he was he was a very charismatic, brilliant man. Covered a lot, knew so much about so many things. Well traveled. Mm -hmm. He was he was fantastic. As uh, um, and I got to take uh, you know, the, just a few three days with him in that eighty-two course. And then in mm -hmm. nineteen eighty-six, we had the international permaculture convergence in. Uh, here in um, in Washington State, and mm -hmm. and so I got Bill to come and give a a permaculture drylands course because I live in Eastern Washington. It's semi-arid drylands, so I said, Bill, I want you to come and teach us a course specifically on drylands. And so he created at for our course, he created the first drylands permaculture curriculum. He he took the standard course curriculum and added a bunch of drylands stuff to it. And, mm -hmm. and so that was the first time he delivered that curriculum. And it was to me and, the, and the, a group of about 25 people. And it was just fantastic. Knock my socks off. And Bill was one of the, uh, you know, one of the leading people in drylands in the world, not just in permaculture, but period of all the people. I remember a story that um, the, you know, the Saudi Arabia King Sultans or whatever, they knew that their money was going to run out of oil at some point. So they, they told some of their ministers or some of their top people, they said, find us the best uh, drylands people in the whole world. Let's get them together and have them, uh, you know, give us some advice. Mm -hmm. And so Bill Mollison was picked as one of those top people in the world by that, by that crew. Uh, and so he, so he really was right up there at the top of the game. Uh, after, yeah. after that course with Bill, then I took a advanced training from design teacher, teacher training and design training from Max Lindiger and oh, Lee sure. Harrison. I think uh -huh. that was 1990, I think. And, and actually, I taught my first permaculture course in 1988. It was mm -hmm. time to be in, in, in sync with the third North American bioregional conference in mm -hmm. a BC. And I was part of that uh, starting from the early days in the bioregional movement as well. I was at their first conference in 84. But at any rate, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. And that's so Peter Berg and those guys. Pardon? Peter Berg and those guys. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Peter Berg and David Hankey and, you know, just a, a great group of people that started the bioregional movement. And then. Yeah. So at any rate, that was in Vancouver, B.C. or north of Vancouver. Excuse me here. Let me. Oh, yeah. Take your time. Thank you. So anyway, I put on a bioregional permaculture course, a permaculture design course with a focus on bioregionalism in, in Canada. It was the first permaculture course ever held in Canada. And uh, we, we, we taught a we had a, a, a great course on, on uh, at Linnea Farm on uh, Cortez Island, British Columbia. And so that was my very first course. But before I taught it, I contacted Bill and I said, oh, Bill, I've, I've taken two of your courses now. I've been studying and hands on for, well, I said, I'd like to teach a permaculture course. 
you know, I, I'm seeking your approval. And he, he says, you have my blessings. He says, go out, do it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so, so I, I mm-hmm. felt with Bill's blessings that I, I felt ready to go. And yeah. since then, I've taught about 40 permaculture design courses. Mm-hmm. I haven't taught any in quite a while. I taught the first course in Belize um, and first course in a few places. But by and large, I've been eclipsed by a lot of other permaculture teachers. 40 courses is not is not it's- bad for some teachers. But um, I remember when Robin Francis, who's a permaculturist from uh, in Australia, she sent out a letter. She says, come to my celebration. This is I'm I'm just finishing my 100th permaculture design course, and we're going to have a celebration at the end of it. You're all invited. And mm-hmm. so I was like, wow, Robin, you did 100 courses. That's great. So I wrote my immediately wrote Max Lindiger, my buddy, too. And I said, Max, Robin's Robin's uh, <clears throat> bragging that she's taught 100 permaculture design courses. How about you? He says, mm-hmm. well, he says. I've taught over a hundred permaculture design courses in, in my day and Bill Mollison certainly has. Yeah. And, um, and Jeff Lawton may have by now. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Andrew Millison's boy, if you count all his online courses, he's probably up there too. So there's, there's right. only maybe five or six or seven <clears throat> people that have broken the hundred PDC course mark. Yeah. 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 I may never never teach another one, so I'm never going to get there. But <laughs> I had is a good that just by choice? What what's uh, would you want to elaborate? <laughs> well, I'm, on mainly, that? I'm mainly teaching other stuff now. Yeah, and in the PDC to do a really good job on teaching the curriculum, you have to stay focused, and you got to cover all the bases, and you really yeah. got to know your stuff. And I usually teach in tandem with another teacher or two, right? Um, but Nowadays, I'm teaching more specialized stuff, and to do a, a PDC curriculum is too constraining for me. So yeah. now I'm teaching permaculture drylands courses, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem restoration courses, um, medicinal right. agroforestry courses, and so I'm 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 I I'm, I don't know. I may do another design course at some point, yeah. but nobody's asked well, me lately. You know what? I've uh, thank you for that background and, and history. Really fascinating. I would I noticed on your website that you had uh, offered a drylands course recently with Penny Livingston and uh, John D. Liu as a guest presenter and, and Andrew Millison. And yeah, we yeah, had, and yeah, Walter Yanni. That was fantastic. Really went well. It looked like quite a course. That's a great lineup of people. Yeah, that was a ten day course. Uh-huh. Uh, again, uh, for a permaculture design course, they it's hard to imagine doing it in less than 12 or 12 days, 14 yeah. days. My, my current, my PDCs have, were generally uh, 14-day courses. In the old days, right. of the history, in the original days, they were three-week courses. Every three PDC, weeks, that's what I've heard. But yeah. there were two one-day breaks in there. So, mm-hmm. uh, so be, mm-hmm. it was 19 days of instruction out of a three week, um, a three week time span. And that's pretty much, that was the, 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 the model in the old days. Yeah. They kept shortening it because it's hard. It makes it expensive and time consuming to do three weeks. And so right. mostly yeah. they're short now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been doing uh, 11 to 12 day one on a weekend format in New York city for about 14 years and probably 
nice. I estimate we're easily upwards of uh, 50 PDCs that I've taught in the last, you know, in the last uh, 20 years total. But a lot of them were in New York City on this weekend format. And yeah. I would love to talk with you more about that at, uh, to see whether, you know, we do a lot of my permaculture design courses are now a combination of online and uh, hands-on. So that's something that we went to when a lot of people did during the pandemic. Before that, all my classes were live classes. But I, I yeah, it's true. The PDC as a curriculum is a, is something you need to really have your uh, commitment to the time and the organization of it. And we're able to bring in the work that we're doing with the Permaculture Living Lands Trust into our permaculture educational programming so that a lot of what I've done over the years with the PDC as a as kind of a baseline offering is folded into it a lot of the new material that I want to keep adding to it. Like We've brought in a lot of systems design about regional planning, about um, retrofitting New York City. And those those things were additions that we made in particular because of where the location was. So we were, you know, like adapting, say, to extreme landscapes like drylands. Similarly, I found that the urban and places like New York City have uh, analog to the dryland scenario in the sense that they're equally in need of earth repair work and in many ways equally damaged and impacted through all the hardscape that's been, you know, planted on that <laughs> landscape, so to speak, that then you're thinking creatively how to, you know, revegetate it and, and green up the urban hardscape with permaculture design. And that's, uh, that's sort of the desert of urban, you know, of urbanization that I took the skills of this type of design thinking into and really over the last 14 years there uh, adapted it to the cityscape kind of application and have used it as you know like you're saying like i bring in a lot of guest teachers a lot of guest teachers it's key that to because you can end up burning yourself out if you try to carry too much of that course well, load burn out this, it's a bit of a disservice to the students too if they only get to hear one voice for all that, that absolutely one. You got to give some diversity, and to me, yeah. it's it's a nice excuse to network with people and bring in all these other experiential voices. So Larry Santoyo is always a guest speaker in ours. Rami's Kent is always a guest presenter. We've awesome. brought in uh, Natalie Topa, and so you're, so, flying, you're flying in your guest guest speakers then. No, they're all on the internet. It's all through Zoom. Oh, I see. You're bringing them in with Zoom. Okay, that yeah, that it's part of more that makes makes more sense that's how i do a lot of mine these days in the old days yeah. though there was no zoom and no. we, we did, it was only in person and yeah uh, well it, there's certainly uh any rate uh, so I'm, that was that was I'm the old timers kind of in a way so i kind of missed oh, yeah. but i realized I that, that zoom format. the online courses now are just reaching so many people and andrew millison's yeah. doing a fantastic job at that i must say though that and it, over the years, there have been, I, I would, I, there's been thousands of people that have taught permaculture design courses, thousands. And, and, and that's, you know, in the U.S. has uh, only got a, a portion of those, of course. Mm -hmm. And and they're certainly not all the same quality. The, it, it, I think <laughs> in the early days, almost anybody that had the guts to teach 
was was <laughs> doing a good job. But in the in the latter years, there's been a lot of Johnny Come Latelys or Joan Come Latelys that 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 take a course and all of a sudden they want to start teaching right away and they don't have much experience under their belt. Some of them don't have the right personalities. In fact, I know people that were really good teachers and know a lot of stuff. I mean, wouldn't necessarily say good teacher, but they know a lot of the information, but they, they, they had a poor personality in terms of interfacing with their group. So mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. the knowledge and the, and the, and the, and the teaching skills and the personality Mm-hmm. I would I tell people, oh, if you want to take a design course, do some research and and ask around. Don't just go to the first one that you find. You know, you absolutely. Do your research. You know, Mike. One thing I wanted to mention was just being. I'm someone who's relatively new to your work, but but really have heard about you for years. And it seems that online you've got such a presence there in terms of content between the, you know, the seed business plus the YouTube videos and. There's really a lot for younger people to to uh, learn from just just by your presence there. So I think one thing is you've you've obviously done a fine job of of using the internet to to help spread your knowledge base. And and I'm wondering how that's worked with you. Do you have like partners that really help you get that out there? And then secondly, I wanted to talk a little more about one particular video about your agroforestry recovery site that 25-year project um there's some really interesting conversation there i think so uh but yeah i'd love to hear how you've been thinking about the web as as your tool for disseminating knowledge well i i i have four youtube channels four websites three facebooks and instagram you know so i have hundreds of youtubes out there so in a sense i have done a fair amount that way but i still feel uh, like a newbie i still feel relatively helpless i have tech people that help me but i am just not that um you know some people with my skill levels and they were really good at tech would be millionaires by now but i've never been (laughs) able to monetize my work very much from the internet so there's not much monetary gain there but i'm i'm into teaching i teach i have i teach many workshops and courses and things annually i've been teaching annually since you know gosh close to 72 actually probably i I, when i started farming i started teaching at the same time i didn't wait (laughs) around much but um so i've i've taught in person you know just many thousands of people um and I much prefer the in-person to the, the internet stuff because I'm perfectly capable in person. But soon as I, soon as I'm relying on the tech, it's, uh, there's so many things that can go wrong that I have no control over that mm-hmm. it's much more stressful. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I use it uh, and would like to use it a lot more. I could actually, if anybody's listening to this podcast, that's a really good tech person. I really need somebody to help me put on, um, uh, online courses, uh, online webinars. I've got a lot of stuff I want to pass on. And my mm-hmm. biggest thing I, well, there's a number, two, my two biggest uh, thrusts at this point are one, uh, medicinal forests or medicinal agroforestry systems. 
and they're almost always going to be medicinal food forests. You cannot have a medicinal forest without there being food there. It'd be pretty much impossible. And you can't have a food forest without having medicinal plants there because so many plants are medicinal, are medicinal right. at the same time. Yeah. But I'm especially after teaching uh, people yeah. how to do medicinal forest agroforestry systems, and I'd like to have an international network yeah. of, of people doing medicinal agroforestry systems. They're out there already. There's already hundreds, if not thousands out there, probably thousands at any rate. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to put a, a really uh, put together a much more of a network and a collaborative effort. So I'm looking for someone to help me pull that off. I just okay. don't have that person. Yeah. So that that quick note on that video that that's up there about the 25-year agroforestry site that you were kind of reclaiming. I, I'm curious from our standpoint, we have a strong interest being a land trust. We have a strong interest in how permaculture and agroforestry sites are owned. You know, what is the land tenure? Are they are they subject to debt? How are they financed? Uh, is it private property? Is it public property? And then ultimately, can it be permanently protected as more of a commons type space that really won't be back on the market at all that can be held in trust for the community's benefit. So sounds mm -hmm. like that piece you were talking about, that piece of land kind of came in and out of your ownership. So I'd love to hear more about that. Well, there are, on the big picture, there are hundreds of different possibilities. In fact, there are hundreds, thousands of different possibilities of land ownership uh, all the way from the communal and the collaborative to use of fruct is maybe a word, but anyways, uh, uh, and then there's um, also a lot of private things and corporate things. I have been part of quite a few communities, intentional communities over the years. Mm -hmm. I, I own a tiny postage stamp lot in a house at this time. But uh, mostly I've never owned anything. Usually I have leased land. And I must say that I've been very fortunate in that most of my farming career, I farmed on land that I had no formal contract, no formal lease agreement, a handshake deal with somebody. And many of the times there was no rent. I have, I have farmed, you know, probably... 20 some years of my uh, out of those 52 probably at least half the time i am farming on a piece of land and not paying rent mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because i'm a really good capable farmer i'm doing things to help the world and people recognize it and they say oh how can we help you uh, if i can go in i bet i could go anywhere in the world right now and people would throw farmland at me and, and not in terms of ownership but in terms of letting me use it and develop it that's yeah, not for point. everybody. A lot of people want that ownership. They want that title or they're not going to put effort into something. I've never right. been like that. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm into creating the, the best gardens and the best uh, systems I can. And I don't, I wouldn't mind owning them, but I don't let that stop me because I've never done much with money. I've never been a big finance person. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of my time is spent in service to the greater good and I don't get paid for an awful lot of my time and so i've never accumulated the money to buy land but i didn't want to let that stop me so i so i would you know that's not a way a lot of people want to go but it is one way to go um yeah. i am interested in land trusts i'm on land trust land right now one of our farms 
Um, and we have a just a year to year contract there. Um, but some friends of mine just started a permaculture land trust. And oh, wow. I, I mentioned that to you. And so they're, they're, um, they're, 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 they only got a couple of pieces at this point, or it's just in the very beginning stages. So mm-hmm. I've just read, a, I'm reading a new book, I just barely cracked it. And I can't think of the title other I think it starts with free, fair, and, and then there's mm-hmm. another word, but it's about they call, they use the term commoning. We need yeah. a world based on the commons, and mm-hmm. and commoning is a, a like a verb for them. And the whole book is about the history of commons in the world and current examples and where we need to go to come up with a world where it isn't all of it owned by private people, but it's a world where we all steward it together. It's Amen. a fantastic book. And I if yeah. I had it in front of me right now, I'm I'm at my office instead of my house. Oh. I'll, f- I'll yeah. find it and link it in the podcast. Yeah, Thank free, you. Free, the fair, and uh, another word. It's by three authors. It's pretty recent. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm, I was... Um, I'll find it. Uh, I just started po- poking around that book. I'm Thank like, you. this is a really good book. The world needs to hear this. So yeah. let's promote yeah. that book. And that's kind of what you guys are talking about. Because I was earlier, I was thinking... Yeah. Affordable housing is a really big issue here, and it's a big issue in so many places uh, mm-hmm. around the world, but and in lots of the U.S. So affordable housing. But what about affordable land? You know, people being able to get on land. You know, there's this whole yeah. FarmLink program now. FarmLink mm-hmm. as a set of programs have only been around, oh, 10, 20 years, relatively mm-hmm. recent. But almost every state has got some kind of a FarmLink program now to help right. beginning farmers link up with exiting farmers and get them a, a decent deal so they can get, they can get, get a head start, you know? And yeah. so, we- you know, um, that that's really encouraging to hear that you're on that same wavelength because we, it sounds like you had a very um, non-attachment view of your perennial work with perennial polycultures. Basically you were, you were not attached to the outcome in terms of controlling the land use future of those sites and yet um in some ways if if your thinking does lead back to land trusts and commons then there is this idea of long-term land security to benefit long-term food security or or medicinal security i mean the idea that the market doesn't do a good enough job of honoring these sites so they need a special level of care in terms of how they're owned and how the title is held because most of human history we we haven't claimed title and deeds to land it's a new thing it's not normal human behavior mm-hmm. right. legacy planting andrew mentioned earlier and my idea of medicinal forests or medicinal agroforests is that every village and every town eventually maybe every neighborhood but that they should mm-hmm. be they should be common they should be worldwide Mm-hmm. And they should it'd be great if most of them would be on public land or communally owned right. land in some way. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that the whole community has access to it. Exactly. It's a lot of medicines. And and at some point, the pharmaceutical uh, complex is going to go down and all those big factories producing all their pharmaceutical medicines. That's not going to be available. And so yeah. people are going to be forced. Uh, a lot of people, some people want to do it anyway. And a lot yeah. of people will do it as a matter of fact, a matter of course, it's all they can afford. 
-hmm. But at some point, it will probably become mandatory that people are, are, are relying on local medicine, local healers. And uh, in my point of view, I think we need to go way back to not only uh, producing our medicines locally in the sense and having local medicine people, it's not a, you know, it's not a corporate owned thing like hospital mm-hmm. complexes today. Yeah. And, that, um, and, and that there's also spiritual healers, you know, back in the old days, you know, for thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of years, every tribe has its shamans and sham, you know, men and women, medicine, men and women. Uh, some of them specialize in herbal medicine, some specialized in spiritual healing, but most of them knew both. And yeah. so mm-hmm. that juxt that that marriage of spirit and physical medicine, I think, is where we need to go again. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. see the green man in back of me here. Yeah. I, just, I just put that out to cover my bins. This is my storage area for <laughs> That's a great cover. Well, I'm going to have this green man looking over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I've got al- I've got allies, folks. I thought that was very appropriate when I saw that when he came on screen. I was like, all right, Michael's got the green man. <laughs> you know, I wanted to share that you probably know or know of or know a guy named Joe Hollis who recently passed away. He was a pretty well-known green man back in the east, eastern. Yeah, in North Carolina. North Joe Carolina, Carolina. yeah. Wonderful yeah. guy, wonderful guy. Yeah. So he had that place called Mountain Gardens, and we're really hopeful that between the nonprofit he created and between his network of herbalists in that Asheville, North Carolina area, that that, that site can be really permanently kept going as one of the great repositories for medicinal plants in in that part of the world even though those plants come from different places mm-hmm. uh, any borders on a national forest the pisgah national forest which is literally hundreds of thousands of acres of mountain land so yeah i just looked at a couple of youtubes with joe and uh he's done you know we need he's a botanical sanctuary and the united mm-hmm. plant savers has a network of you know of, of botanical sanctuaries mm-hmm. uh, right. so called and so uh joe had a really good one you know it's it's mm-hmm. i assume that he was somewhere in the thousand plus species of of plants mm-hmm. on his property uh the bullock brothers here have over they had over a thousand species you know 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, i've the most i've ever got up to was like 200 i've never uh but i'm always trying new things but mm-hmm. anyway we need those botanical sanctuaries and we need them held yeah. in perpetuity so they right. can't get taken away or bulldozed or whatever right. subdivided and so i encourage you to uh, work with joe um i'm writing an article right now on the the seed uh, pioneers of our counterculture seed pioneers and i have joe on there and I'm making a list of, of people who have devoted their life to seed, being seed people and keeping biodiversity alive and open pollinated crops available. Mm-hmm. And there's the Kent Wheelies and the David Theodoropoulos. At any rate, I've got a long list of people that I'm trying to honor in this article. Mm-hmm. So that this is going to be focused on seed people, but it will include some nursery people as well. And it's Thanks. it's the people that's that come from my background where we were counterculture we were hippies back then some of us still are mm-hmm. and are, we want a better world we want a world with a clean environment and no war we're flower children and we, we want uh, stewardship and equity mm-hmm. and we're, we stand for yeah. 
organic, et cetera. And yeah. there's a whole group of seed people that came from that milieu, mm-hmm. that came from that mm-hmm. background. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to write in, I'm trying to honor them. Mm-hmm. And so here's another thing I'd like the audience to consider and and in use is that there's a there's a book out of Australia called Permaculture Pioneers, and it features about oh 35 or so of the early permaculture teachers and people in Australia um, that were really instrumental in building that early movement. And Hmm. each one gets a little chapter and you learn about their life and their history. And it's just a fabulous, Mm -hmm. uh, inspirational, especially for young people to read and say, Oh, look at what these people did and what they, what they started with and what they built up with most of them from just very grassroots. Yeah. We need the permaculture pioneers book for the United States. Yeah. Who are the early permaculture pioneers in the United States? And let's honor them and let's tell their story. And of course, I would I would probably be in it then, uh, depending who's. Yes. Uh, if I get to edit it, I'll put myself <laughs> in there for sure. Yeah, I'm a I'm pretty early on well in the region, so I'm one of the pioneers. But there's a lot Absolutely. of few of us. Larry Santoyo could be in there, and right, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. Somebody's. I really want somebody to take that on as their mission. It wouldn't yeah. be that hard. You just identify some of the pioneers, spread the list around, and get other nominations. And then some of them may have stories already out there. There may be some bibliographies. They may actually have some articles. But start with what you have and, and get something written up um, uh, by or about each of them and, and put it together in a book. Or it could be on a website, too. Um, I like books but it could also be a living document that's on a website that people could build up over time. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I really would love to see that. Great idea. I, yeah. I wonder if you could tell us a little about some of your work with the, the agroforestry plantings. And I was, I was especially interested if you were um, some of the ones where if you were incorporating nut trees, any of them that were in cold climates. Yeah. So just general, generally what, if you want to share about agroforestry projects that you've worked on in the last 30 years. Okay. A question here for you, Andrew, is this a, actually a zoom podcast that people are seeing faces or is this going to be voice only? Uh, mainly audio. Yeah. Okay. I would only release a video if you, you know, if that was something that you were all right with, but usually well, I do. I, I like, I think it's nice to see people's faces when they're talking. Yeah. I, I usually release an audio first and then we'll release the video later. Okay. I just noticed that, the way you have your camera set up, your face is cut off quite a bit of the time. And so oh. it'd be better if you were, if your face was uh, <laughs> cut off part yeah. of the time. Thank you. Someone, someone had to say that. I'm glad you did, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> um, so agroforestry. So I started Friends of the Tree Society in 1978. And the, the term agroforestry was created about the same time as the term permaculture. Mid-1970s, agroforestry was a term come up with uh, by a group of people working out of pretty much uh, Nairobi, Kenya, particularly, and they started the World Center for Agroforestry, or ECRAF. Back then, it was called the International, I can't remember, uh, Research on on Agroforestry, but ECRAF. Now, it's got a slightly different name now. But I came across those agroforestry people right after they started 
you know, in the mid in those mid seventies. And actually, yeah. come to think of it, ecosystem restoration as a discipline, as a science, as a term, was also invented in nineteen mid nineteen seventies by uh, Jordan. Uh, was it uh, something Jordan the third? And, and out of the University of uh, Wisconsin Madison, and so permaculture, agroforestry, and ecosystem restoration started all about the same time. And I was there at the beginning phases of 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 most of them. It took me a little bit longer to define permaculture compared to agroforestry, but I was one of the I was an early subscriber to the first ecosystem restoration magazine. So I've been involved in all three movements hmm. almost since their inception. Mm-hmm. And so agroforestry has always been a really key topic for me. I have a really large library. Uh, whenever we teach a permaculture design course, I always want to teach the agroforestry section. But there's other people right. that want to teach it, too. So we're always having to negotiate. OK, who gets to teach this? Who gets to teach that? <laughs> um, but I love agroforestry and I've done a lot of agroforestry plantings, dozens of them over the years. I've done a lot of consultation and I've written quite a bit. Uh, did a lot of research, and so it's um you know it's a it's a one of my pet topics and mm-hmm. and my medicinal and I also <clears throat> for the last twenty five years uh, have been really focused on medicinal herbs. Actually, I could say that when did the when did the Renaissance and herbal medicine start with Rosemary Gladstar and those people? Mid mm-hmm. early seventies, mid seventies. So it's interesting. A whole lot of things got rolling about that time the environmental movement there were so many movements that got mm-hmm. started there and and a lot yeah. of us bioregional was a little bit later that was 19 early 80s but anyway i i tend to latch on to all, the, all of these cutting edge things and um i think agroforestry is one of the salvations of the world in terms of what it takes to actually repair the world's climate and lands and soils, agroforestry is one of the key things because yeah. we what we need to do um, is take an awful lot of the farmland that is currently in cultivation and with bare dirt, that every bare dirt farmland is a heat island. That's mm-hmm. why the planet is heating up. It isn't heating up because of fossil fuel burning. It has some role, yes. But the main reason the planet is heating up is because of landscape degradation and and the the world has less and less greenery. So we need to take the farmlands of the world and put a lot of it into agroforestry systems. So it's still agriculture. It's still production, still feeding people. But it's building the soil, building ecosystem. It's keeping biodiversity and it's going to cool the planet. So agroforestry is essential, essential right. for 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 planetary regeneration, and I could go on about that for, for a long time. Would you mind and, sharing? And could you share, that's great. Can you share some about projects that like that have inspired you that you've had the for you know that you've had the opportunity to work on that are agroforestry oriented? Any any cold climate ones or. Almost all my stuff is cold climate, though. Uh-huh, I do have a book out called uh, Agroforestry Guide to the Hawaiian Islands. So I <clears throat> took my agroforestry thinking and went and, and produced something for the Hawaiian Islands. So I, I, I'm somewhat like I'm conversant at any rate in tropical, subtropical, but I'm mostly temperate, cold temperate uh, zone guy. Mm-hmm. And, and 
I most of the projects that I've worked on have been my own projects. I have very little time to work on other people's projects. I'm, I'm a miserable permaculture consultant. I do a little consulting, it's true, but I can't like produce these fancy designs, partly it's capability, but partly it's time because mm-hmm. what I tell people is I said, oh yes, you want to pay me to help you do your project. I said, I'm so busy doing my own projects, I don't have time for yours. And so right. that's why I haven't worked on many other people's <laughs> agroforestry projects is because I'm busy. Well, I'm busy Working doing on your own. own. Yeah. yeah. All right. I've been yeah. farming and growing and planting trees every year, pretty much since 72. Mm-hmm. And um, when you have your own farm, it's pretty darn all encompassing. Not only farming, I'm teaching every year. I'm organizing events. I'm networking. I have a lot of, arrows in my quiver but when you're a farmer and doing all those other things there's not a whole lot of time to uh work on other people's stuff yeah yeah but i'm inspired of course by reading about other people's things like eric tonesmeyer's book on carbon farming is fantastic Mm -hmm. i have like i say i have a very large library on agroforestry systems and i've read most of those books and I'm inspired by them, and I know a lot of the people in in the agroforestry movement. I've been recently working with Dennis Garrity, who was the head for the ECRAF, you know, International Agroforestry Organization, for quite a few years. And now he's got something going called the Global Evergreening Alliance. And his goal, or the GEA's goal, is to bring agroforestry onto millions of small-scale farms in Africa and Asia so they can green up their land and go into agroforestry more. So they're taking agroforestry uh, and getting the really big carbon credit money, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And really they're, they're after the millions of, of farms and they're probably up to the hundreds of thousands by now. So they're mm-hmm. really doing great work. Um, so there's a lot out there going on, even though the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, there's lots of good projects out there that point the way forward. If yeah. you get the policymakers, unfortunately, the big money and the big governments and the policymakers, so-called policymakers, are basically driving down the wrong road. Mm, heading yeah. for a cliff. Mm-hmm. They're taking the whole world yeah. towards a cliff. The world is heading for a uh, really big, uh, you know, I'm I'm expecting a cataclysmic uh, changes here. Um, in then at any point, you just don't know how long it's gonna. They're gonna keep this thing on the road. One nuclear war would would uh, would would pretty much toast the the current uh, civilization. Yes. Uh, the, the, the medicinal cost- forest and agroforestry and permaculture and all the things that we're promoting, we're building lifeboats. Right, exactly. Yeah. So when you look at the COP28 conference that's going on now to, quote, try to solve some of these problems, it, it all the reports we're getting back seem that it's really just window dressing. There's really not a, an understanding of how deep the commitment needs to be to change or, or the willingness to change. However, you know, you touched on some really key points about earth repair and that's something I think as a newer land trust, Permaculture Living Lands Trust, we are uh, having to really address is just traditional ecological knowledge around the world has forever been the stewards of biodiversity everywhere. Now we face such ominous threats from modernization, from industrialization, from 
the ability to destroy land at a faster rate than we've ever had before with machines and also now with artificial intelligence, the question becomes how do we how do we look at permaculture as a as a system for earth repair that is a response to that really the global threats and the global crises that are that are facing biodiversity and human communities simultaneously. So I'm just wondering if you, you know, how has that factored into your work? You've you've seen different traditional ecological life ways and and management systems around the world and then now you're you're really bringing forth a, a, a system that helps confront the the challenge that's out there. So just would love to hear your thoughts on that that transition from where we've come from to where we need to be headed. I've got an article on my website, uh, Global Earth Repair Foundation website, uh, called uh, Paradise Out of Disaster. And it basically, what I point out in there is that I don't I don't see us uh, designing ourselves out of this mess we're in. I think that we're going to have to hit a collapse and then we can build back better. So the old term build back better. So um, what I do also believe is that at this point, we have a worldwide network. There's, uh, we have a worldwide voice, and you're part of the voice here with your podcast. Um, it's important to state the best solutions that we can and bring them to the public's attention mm-hmm. and show models. And if, when the, that collapse happens, or when, you know, then more and more people are informed of what do they do next? What do you do when that happens? And so right now I'm working with a group called the Eco Restoration Alliance. I don't know if you know them, but they're based out of New York more than anywhere else, uh, the Northeast. But it's a global, uh, it's a global uh, network of, of, of people, organizations that are working for global restoration. And mm-hmm. so Eco Restoration Alliance. And Eco so I encourage Yeah, that's the that's the name. And you can find them on the internet. They were yeah, started I'll link it at the end of this partly thing. out of the Biopark Climate Alliance uh, uh, group. But anyway, they're doing great work and I consider that their members and membership and the what the solutions that they're coming up with are are the cutting edge on the world scene right now on what how we can solve the climate crisis how we can stabilize the world's climate, how we can cool the planet and restore the ecosystems. I don't think, I haven't seen anybody right now with a better grasp on that. And so I'm trying to help publicize their work. Mm-hmm. And um, and well, so, um, and that's through my Global Earth Repair Foundation. But we need more and more people uh, trumpeting these solutions to as many people as possible. So you mm-hmm. know, because you know permaculture, you know permaculture is more than any other discipline, more than agroforestry, more than than ecosystem restoration. Of yeah. all the movements out there, I think permaculture is actually number one in terms of an overall uh, know what to do and whole systems perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Agroforestry totally movement agree. focuses on agroforestry. Ecosystem restoration focuses on ecosystem restoration, environmentalism, blah, blah, conservation. But permaculture encompasses it all. And so mm-hmm. I'm I'm in awe of permaculture. And and uh, 
it's unfortunate that permaculture has never by and large taken off. It's, it's certainly gained a huge amount of credibility over the years, but it's still mm-hmm. a step child, so to speak. It's sort of mm-hmm. a bit of a pariah. As mm-hmm. soon as you bring up permaculture, some people's eyeballs, the scientists particularly, <laughs> maybe a lot of them, their eyeballs start to roll and they're like, oh, you guys are too radical or you're too grassroots. We're, we're mm-hmm. grassroots, we're radical. Yeah, but because all those we, things are needed. <laughs> but a lot of us were hippies in the old days, and so a lot of people that didn't like hippies, they tarred us sure. with the with that brush. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think that it's interesting, Michael. You bring that up because I've certainly been thinking about that as well. Because I mean, you know, I I studied permaculture in '96 when I was teaching at a school with. Peter Bain and Chuck Marsh and Patricia Allison, who started Earth Haven. And, um, you, you know, uh, I've felt that as I've thought over the years as a teacher and really thinking about how do you educate people in a society that really has no concern about ecological destruction or loss of human quality of life. And, you know, to me, the hippies, as for in the United States were one of the most important movements that happened that has been basically kind of disparaged by the war machine yuppie culture that came after it. And they never recovered from the way the yuppies just disparaged what the hippies were advocating for and what the beats were advocating for. And I think that, you know, it's like a cultural uh, sort of conflict of ideologies that is going on. Very interesting to, because to me, um, as an educator, one of the things I focused on with bringing permaculture into New York City was really giving it a sophisticated and professional stage presence, how to present Mm -hmm. in a public setting, a really dialed in and sharp version of permaculture design. And I felt we, that was a success. I mean, 14 years on the Lower East Side and in Brooklyn teaching PDCs is a very unusual place to do that type of curriculum. And that was Monica Ibukachi ring a bell. What's that? The name Monica Ibukachi ring a bell. Oh, sure. Monica took her PDC with me. Right. Okay. She's she's one of my students. One of my New York friends, you know. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, So, so so where I'm going with that is simply to say, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of your, hearkening it back to a certain cultural tradition of a point of view. And that one of the things that I think we're working on on from other sides of the same continent is that bringing the broad understanding and solution-oriented vision of permaculture more into the public lens. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen the film Inhabit, but that film is a product of my classes in New York City. Because what I did as an educator there was I purposefully attracted filmmakers to study permaculture with me and then groomed them in a certain message of how to tell the story of permaculture. And that film is a direct product of that, as is Costa's ongoing, um, you know, portfolio of films. And I think the film world is an important place for us to continue to think about how we transform the cultural consciousness Combined with you know what I'm so inspired to share with you about the the work of the Permaculture Living Lands Trust is it really is a evolution of my own sense of where do we need to bring the permaculture community 
in the future in terms of the good work that people are doing around uh, silviculture and around trees as a long-term inheritance. And what we're seeing is the way they just get sacrificed so willy-nilly by a society that is so much more interested in condos and expanding a footprint of inhabiting the planet that is very destructive to something like, could we actually start to think about a landscape where we have a long-term inheritance like permaculture has envisioned, like J. Russell Smith has envisioned, like, you know, I think we can go back to even some of the Jeffersonian, the term landscape of posterity that permaculture is interested in and that we're aligned with philosophically and ethically, but we live in the midst of a society and a culture that is just in this short-term instant gratification mentality. And we need to wake up to the long-term possibilities of creating a planet that's actually more prosperous. And, and we feel trees are a foundational part of it. And I so appreciate your work because in the 90s, when I first started reading about permaculture, I read your book on restoration forestry. And you've, you've always been an inspiration of mine and helped to uh, bring that vision and uh, inspired me as a teacher. I, I we're drawing to a close here, but I just maybe yeah. two two thoughts uh, uh, from the last conversation here. And one is that you know we're involved in a war, a war for humanity in a sense, or for we might say the soul of humanity, or we're in a war for the the infrastructure of the world, uh, the mm -hmm. ecosystems of the world. And the reason that hippies were disparaged and put down and that permaculture has been disparaged and put down is because the people that run dominant media and run the propaganda machines of the world don't like us because we are a threat. We mm -hmm. are a real threat to the powers that be that want to control everything top down. And they are into destruction of humans and into destruction of the planet. And we're in a war. And so, of course, they're throwing everything they can to disparage us and to try to uh, not deplatform us, so to speak. They don't want us there at COP28 speaking to the crowd, um, or certainly not to the people at any rate. Uh, but anyway, yeah. yeah. So that's one point I'd like to make is that, you know, the, one of the reasons that permaculture hasn't gotten further ahead than it has is because there are forces arrayed against us. Hmm. Bill Mollison, always, I remember him saying, he says, well, I hope they don't come and get me and shoot me. And, you know, because he knew he, he was radical and he didn't make no bones about it, that mm -hmm. he wanted to see the world power structure change. And of course, I haven't made any uh, bones about it either. So um, yeah. but that, that's one thing. Anyway, mm -hmm. but another point of view, you mentioned traditional ecological knowledge. The indigenous people of the world have a huge amount of experience on how to live sustainably in ecosystems. And I study ethnoecology and mm -hmm. ethnobotany, but ethnoecology is how did ethnic peoples change or work with the landscape? And there's a, a new term, a socio-ecosystem uh, put out by Jeanette Armstrong. She's an indigenous person from Okanagan, British Columbia. And she says that the indigenous people were so tightly in tune with their land around them and their ecosystems, and they worked with the ecosystems and changed them and helped. Them. They collaborated with the ecosystems in a way that 
the the they were socio ecosystems. They were they were a melding of the human and the ecosystems, and they could be fantastic. Yeah. And so we need to go back to those. We need to really look at indigenous systems and mm-hmm. honor the indigenous people and 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 help protect them because right now uh yeah. every every the a lot of the people that are being killed on the front lines in the world are the are indigenous people trying to protect their lands and their forests right. Right. and so permaculture should be allying and protecting and we need to have permaculturists go and live with them as a political shield in a way i know people that do that and there's something about it's a little bit harder to come in and machine gun up a, a, a indigenous community if there's some U.S. people there <laughs> with that that you know yeah that but somebody's going to squawk if they get shot. So right. anyway, we should be working with indigenous people for their knowledge and just to help them help them stay alive. You know, yeah, it's, it's allyship. I mean, our our liberation is bound up with each other. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. And, and with 75% of all the cropland in America being devoted to animal feed, animal feed, basically, your point about the opportunities, they're just endless. We, this whole idea of, a, you know, new landscapes that we get to create together as gardeners is really phenomenal for, for people like us who, who know that, that, younger people are coming up with a sense of hope when they learn that, when they see those opportunities, mm-hmm. instead of feeling like they just have to become a grower and try to sell tomatoes at the farmer's market. There's so much more to be done on a landscape scale, like you're talking about, and that we're really interested in working on as a land trust. So mm-hmm. let's do stay in touch for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. My hat's off to both of you. You're, you're doing, I see oh. you're doing really good work and, you're young and you got lots of places you can take it. So um, keep going. Um, I'm well. Thank you. Uh, thank hanging you. in there while I can. Um, yeah. And, we- um, if somebody's got to organize that next North American Permaculture Convergence, I did that. Help do that first that, one with Monica with great idea. people on that team. Corinne yep. Brennan from Florida. Some of you you may at any rate there there was a a team of us that put that together. Then they did a couple in Northern California, at least one. Did they do two? At least one North American permaculture convergence uh, in Hopland, California that I was at. I don't know, trying to think if they've ever actually formally done a third one. I can't mm-hmm. say it, but boy, mm-hmm. it's amazing that there, that there isn't one in the works. So use, yeah, somebody yeah. get something, okay? Yeah, yeah. Good advice. that's a great idea. <laughs> Well, thank you, Michael, for taking the time to talk with us today, and I look forward to continuing conversations. I'd I'd love to talk with you about having you come in, maybe as a as a guest teacher for just a few minutes in an online course that we're doing coming up. Sure. Okay. And well, there, a few minutes. You know, I need at least a yeah, half hour. Yeah, to, to just keep let's just keep the conversation going. But really, such an inspiration to talk with you and meet you. I've so appreciated your work over the years, and let's keep those solutions and those visions rolling out into the world okay we better tell people i don't know maybe it's in your paper thing friends of the trees.net yeah please tell us contact you friends of the trees.net global yep global earth repair foundation.org that's the international wing and then friends of the trees botanicals.com is the herb business and the uh propagation material etc we 
we can ship seeds and propagation material all around the U.S. Uh, to people Great. that are trying to set up medicinal systems. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. I will link all those at the in the podcast uh, description for those listening. All right. Well, all right. a pleasure. You oh. get you you know somewhere down the line, uh, ask me back or absolutely or whatever. But please, uh, thank stand you. Up, you know? Thank you. Yeah. Long thank live you. The trees, Michael. Peace. Yeah. Peace. Peace. And love. Peace right. and love. Thank you for your work. Okay. Be Take well. Care. Take care. Wow, that's a tour de force right there. Thanks so much for listening to Permaculture Perspectives. Really so much to follow up there for you with Michael Polarski. And look forward to some of our next interviews with permaculture heavyweights in the field. We've got John O'Niger coming up, Brock Dolman, and more permaculture perspectives. Thanks for listening.